You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. Today, episode 181, The West Point Chain. After the defeat and surrender of Burgoyne's Northern Army at Saratoga, the threat to upstate New York diminished greatly. The British abandoned Fort Ticonderoga without a fight and retreated back to St. John's. General Horatio Gates reported back to Congress that they had found the fort had been destroyed and abandoned in November 1777. Even after the British abandoned Ticonderoga, General Guy Carleton still commanded a British force in Quebec. General Henry Clinton still commanded a force in New York City, but neither of them had a large enough force to succeed where General Burgoyne had failed. The Continentals did not know if the British might make another attempt to take control of the Hudson River the following year, though. In the months following the American victory at Saratoga, the Continentals began assembling an army led by General Lafayette to invade Quebec. However, as I said in an earlier episode, the lack of sufficient soldiers and supplies led to that mission being abandoned before it even really got started. Also, that spring, the Americans had debated an attack on Philadelphia or New York City. Of the two, New York still had far fewer British defenders. However, the presence of the British Navy around New York still made it a difficult battlefield for the Americans. General Washington, of course, was keeping his main focus on the British in and around Philadelphia. Upstate New York pretty much became less of a focus for everyone. Congress left General Gates in overall command of New York, even though Gates was serving as head of the Board of War by this time and spent the winter and early spring of 1778 near Congress in York, Pennsylvania. In upstate New York, General Israel Putnam served as the commander in the field. Gates's overall command was again a bit touchy because Putnam was more senior to Gates and therefore outranked him. Everyone seemed to recognize, however, that Putnam was not a strong commander. His command in upstate New York was because no one expected a large-scale combat in that area. Gates, despite his role in the Conway Cabal, still probably had the best reputation after his victory at Saratoga. In December 1777, General Washington directed Putnam to focus on building river obstructions along the Hudson River. Although Putnam spent part of the winter back home in Connecticut, he did focus what he could with his army on building the new Hudson River defenses. The biggest obstacle for Putnam was that, just like the soldiers at Valley Forge, his men were starving and did not have sufficient clothing, blankets, and other supplies to work outdoors over the winter. Others, however, thought that Putnam himself was simply not up to the job. New York Governor George Clinton wrote to General Gates that same month to say that 
while Putnam was certainly a brave soldier, he just wasn't up to the task of building river defenses. Remember that back in October 1777, British General Sir Henry Clinton had launched a raid from New York City, capturing Forts Montgomery and Clinton on the Hudson River. Putnam had been in charge of the area, including those forts at the time. In November, Congress demanded an inquiry into the defense of those forts and why it had failed so badly. Washington put off the matter that winter as he was struggling with the difficulties at Valley Forge and dealing with the Conway cabal that threatened his command of the army. After about five months, though, in March 1778, Washington was able to turn his attention to Putnam and begin the congressionally mandated inquiry. He relieved Putnam of his command while the inquiry against him proceeded. Washington's letter to Putnam is almost apologetic, saying that whether the charges are well or ill-grounded, that they must be indulged. It seemed that New Yorkers were refusing any support for the project as long as Putnam remained in command. So, to resolve this, Washington put New York General Alexander McDougall in command of the region. The Court of Inquiry would eventually absolve Putnam of any failures of command. It found that the loss of the forts was the result of a lack of manpower, mostly because almost all available soldiers had been sent to support General Gates's army at Saratoga at the time of Clinton's attack. Despite the acquittal, Putnam did not regain his command in New York. Instead, Washington requested that Putnam go back to his home state of Connecticut to recruit more soldiers for the coming campaign. Before Putnam left command, he had identified several locations along the Hudson River to build defenses. His successor, General McDougall, took up right where Putnam left off. The Americans looked at the four identified locations along the river where they should build obstructions and establish defenses. Now, this, of course, was not the first attempt to establish and build defenses. As early as 1775, Patriots planned for ways to prevent the British fleet from making its way upriver to the Hudson Valley from New York City. That was why places like Forts Montgomery, Clinton, and Constitution existed along the river in the first place. Patriots had even constructed a chain across the river at Fort Montgomery in 1776 in order to block ships. Now, that chain proved to be a disaster. When they first deployed the 600-yard chain across the river, it just broke from the strain of the river current. After a repair and a second deployment, it broke again. So they gave up for the winter, figuring the ice would do a better job of preventing any boats from sailing up the river than their chain did. Finally, in April of 1777, they once again deployed that chain at Fort Montgomery. When the British finally did sail up the river that October, the chain proved only to be a minor nuisance for the British. After they captured Fort Montgomery, they were able to take their time cutting the chain and then sail upriver to Fort Constitution and then up to Burn, Kingston, New York. After the British completed their raid and returned to New York City, the Americans focused on building new and better defenses that they hoped would be in place for 1778. This time, they turned to some European engineers for expertise. Specifically, they looked to Louis Leslie de Radier, a French captain who had received a continental commission as a lieutenant colonel of engineers in July 1777. 
After his appointment to the Hudson River Project in the fall, Congress promoted Radier to full colonel. So De La Radier wanted to build a large chain near Forts Clinton and Montgomery again, close to where the old chain had been deployed. Everyone else on the project, including the governor of New York and General Putnam, who didn't agree on much, both agreed that they wanted the chain much further upriver near Fort Constitution. It was at that point that there was a natural bend in the river that would force any ships to slow down and turn. The width of the river was not as great there, meaning the chain did not have to be as long either. So Radiate was overruled and construction began at Fort Constitution. Radiate began the work, but complained so much about the site and the project that he asked to be relieved after a few months. So he returned to Washington's army for a new assignment. The project then turned to a new officer, Colonel Tadeusz Kasusko, the Polish officer who most recently had been responsible for the American defenses at Saratoga and who had also been a part of the project to lay a chain across the river at Fort Ticonderoga a year earlier. To work with Kasusko, Washington ordered Colonel Rufus Putnam to join the project. Rufus's grandfather was a cousin of General Israel Putnam, so the two men had a distant family relationship, but were not really close. Israel Putnam was, of course, from Connecticut. Rufus Putnam grew up in Massachusetts. It was from there that he served in the French and Indian War. He joined the Siege of Boston with his militia unit right after the Battle of Lexington and Concord. And when the Continental Army was formed, Rufus Putnam received a commission as a lieutenant colonel. So Putnam had earned his engineering cred by setting up the Dorchester Heights defenses in one night. Those were the cannons on Dorchester Heights that forced the British to evacuate Boston in early 1776. After that, General Washington assigned Putnam to work on the defenses at New York. In December 1776, his military career faltered, when Congress rejected his plan to form a Corps of Engineers. Some sources say that Putnam resigned his commission and returned home to Massachusetts. In his memoirs, Putnam does not mention resigning. He says simply that he returned home to Massachusetts to recruit more volunteers for the Army. In late 1777, following Burgoyne's invasion of New York, Putnam once again offered his services to the Continental Army, and he led two regiments as a combat officer during the Battle of Saratoga. Now, although Putnam was not directly involved in the building of defenses at Saratoga, Putnam does say in his memoirs that he had discussions with Kosciuszko about the defenses. So the two officers probably began to develop a relationship during that Saratoga campaign. Both Putnam and Kosciuszko agreed with the consensus idea that favored a chain across the Hudson River at Fort Constitution because it was a narrow point in the river with the two right angles. Also, the hills around the river caused the winds to shift suddenly, so for sailing ships it was a difficult maneuver, even without any defenses there. Crews would have to slow down and tack their sails to make the turns and navigate the shifting winds. The first effort to create defenses at that point, though, went to Bernard Romans in 1775. Bernard Romans was a Dutch-born colonist who had moved to upstate New York during the French and Indian War. He had married and settled into a Dutch-speaking community there. He worked as a surveyor and a cartographer, 
a job that took him all over North America, including extensive work in the Floridas. By 1773, he was living in upstate New York again, as the population divided and took sides as loyalists or patriots, Romans decisively sided with the patriots. He traveled to Boston, where he was supposedly present at the Boston Tea Party. He traveled throughout New England, where, among other things, he developed relationships with many of the patriot leaders. So, because of this and his engineering experience, the patriot legislature in Connecticut sent Romans in 1775 to Fort Ticonderoga to assist with its capture. By the time he got there, Colonel Allen and Arnold had already taken the fort, so Roman took his soldiers south to capture Fort George. Like Ticonderoga, Fort George surrendered without a fight. Afterwards, Romans returned to Ticonderoga and assisted Benedict Arnold with assessing the guns and ammunition that they had captured there. As it became clearer that all-out war was underway, New York patriots focused on the need to fortify the Hudson River. The Continental Congress recommended Romans to the New York commissioners, and they gave him the job of surveying the river and selecting key locations for fortifications, and then to build those fortifications. Romans, working with several other locals, selected Martellier's Rock as the site to build a fort. This was a rocky island in the Hudson River. And there he set about building Fort Constitution, which later resulted in the island becoming known as Constitution Island. Romans began work on the fort there, which became a pretty considerable defensive fort with four bastions and 70 cannons. But by the end of 1775, many were questioning the choice of the site and the cost of the fort construction. Although the site on Constitution Island made a land assault on the fort very difficult, it also was not on the high ground. Right across the river, a rocky point stood far above Fort Constitution, making it an obvious place to launch an artillery attack on the fort. Disputes between Romans and the New York commissioners resulted in Romans traveling to Philadelphia to shore up support for his leadership of the project. Congress did not want to overrule the New York commissioners, so they ended up reassigning him to be a captain of artillery and sent him off to participate in the Quebec campaign. After Romans' departure, Fort Constitution fell into neglect. Many of the cannons and other resources were redeployed downriver, where the Continentals focused on Forts Clinton and Montgomery and Fort Independence. The British expedition under General Clinton destroyed those forts in 1777. Then they made their way up to Fort Constitution, which by this time only had a token garrison, and at the sight of the approaching British fleet, that token garrison fled without a fight. So the British destroyed Fort Constitution. And from there, they continued upriver to burn the town of Kingston before drawing back to New York City. For more on that, go back and see episodes 164 and 166. In January 1778, the Americans once again began rebuilding the defenses in the area. As I said, first under Louis de la Radiere, then under Rufus Putnam and Tadeus Kosciuszko. The men rebuilt Fort Constitution. It was a little smaller than the original fort, but capable of delivering fire against any ships making their way around the curve in the river. Then, to protect Fort Constitution from the high ground on the western side of the river, 
they built Fort Arnold, named after General Benedict Arnold. For obvious reasons, the fort would later be renamed Fort Clinton. However, having established that fort, it became obvious that there was even higher ground further to the west that could be used to capture Fort Arnold. So to prevent that, the team constructed a third fort known as Fort Putnam, named for its builder, Rufus Putnam. Fort Putnam would be the largest fort and would hold the largest garrison in the protection of the other fort. The next problem, though, was that if you went even a little further west, there was even higher ground which might be used to threaten Fort Putnam. So there, the engineers built yet another outpost, this one simply known as Redoubt No. 4, to prevent any attack from there on Fort Putnam. Collectively, the forts on the western side of the river became known as West Point. The defenders did not simply want to rely on artillery and the natural river bends to deter any naval advances upriver. To block passage, they constructed a large chain across the river. I've already mentioned the relative lack of success of other chains. This one, the defenders hoped would be different by making it even larger and stronger. The officer in charge of constructing the chain was Captain Thomas Matchin. The captain was an English-born engineer who specialized in metallurgy and canal building. In 1772, his employer had sent him from England to New Jersey to inspect a copper mine. Matchin opted to stay in the colonies and settled in Boston. He supported the Patriots and obtained a commission in the Continental Army. He had been working on the Hudson River defenses since 1776 and had been responsible for the Fort Montgomery chain, which had proven to be such a disaster. Even so, Matchin had the most experience in the area and was ready for another try. The new chain would have to span about 600 yards. Each link in the chain was made of iron bars that were more than two inches square thick and weighed over 100 pounds each. The total weight of the chain was over 180 tons. Fortunately, the colonies had a rather large iron industry. At the time the war began, the colonies were producing about 30,000 tons of iron each year, roughly 14% of worldwide production. So production of the chain went to a local New York forge run by Peter Townsend. Now, if you're of a certain age, that might make you ask who, but no relation. The forge was over 30 miles away, and when asked if he could get the links overland to the fort over poorly marked roads, Townsend assured them that, I can see for miles. And to further doubt, he told them, you better, you bet. To concerns that the chain might break, like the old one at Fort Montgomery, Townsend assured them that, we won't get fooled again. And when asked whether his young workers were up to the task, he told them they were talking about my generation, that these were rough boys, and that the kids are all right. Okay, I'll stop now, I promise. The individual links had to be drawn on ox-drawn sleds to New Windsor, upriver from West Point. From there, they floated down on rafts and were assembled together on site. Once in place, the chain rested on rafts to keep it afloat. Each raft was over 50 feet long and 12 feet wide. A series of ropes and pulleys allowed the operators to adjust the chain as needed. Large stone-filled boxes served as anchors on each side of the river to keep the chain in place. By April 1778, the hundreds of men working to build and move the chain had it in place across the Hudson River. 
A long barrier was built about a hundred yards south of the chain to slow any ship that might try to build up enough speed to just break through the chain. The entire process took only about eight weeks from conception to completion. If a ship had to pass upstream, the team could lower a portion of the chain to create a gap. To prevent any destruction from winter ice, the team would have to pull the chain each winter and then redeploy it in the spring. As such, it would take a team of hundreds of men to maintain it. Artillery batteries also sat right across the shore to fire on any ships and prevent any direct assault on the coasts where the chain was anchored. These shore batteries were in turn protected by the series of forts sitting just above them. General Samuel Parsons served as the first fort commander. He oversaw the building project almost from the beginning. He would serve until General Benedict Arnold took command of the fort in the summer of 1780. So over those first three years, the garrison worked to build and improve defenses. Kosciuszko remained head engineer for several years, working directly on the defensive features of the fort complex. And again, he would be stationed there until 1780, when he transferred to the Southern Theater. George Washington considered West Point to be a critical linchpin of continental defenses. He made West Point his headquarters in June of 1779 and remained there for several months before moving south to Morristown, New Jersey. The total size of the garrison was considerable, and it varied over the course of the war, but at times was over 3,000 soldiers. As such, West Point was generally considered to be an impregnable defensive point on the Hudson River, which the British would not be able to pass again. The chain would remain in place for the remainder of the war, and the British would never again attempt to make their way up the Hudson River from New York City. I mean, the only way the British might have a chance would be as if maybe they bribed the West Point commander and convinced him to turn over the fort and the defenses and the garrison in exchange for a large sum of money and perhaps a commission in the regular army. But hey, what are the chances of that happening? Next week, we're going to return to Philadelphia as General Howe prepares to turn over command to General Henry Clinton. This episode is supported by the food delivery service, Factor. It's spring now, and we all want to spend more time outdoors, enjoying life, not the kitchen. Factor ensures you have fresh, never-frozen, chef-crafted, dietitian approved meals that you can prepare in just two minutes. Each week, you get a menu of 35 meal options, as well as 60 add-ons, including breakfasts, on-the-go lunches, snacks, and beverages. You can customize your orders to get as much or as little as you want each week and can pause or make changes to your orders at any time. Factor is less expensive than takeout and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. It's the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, upscale options done easily. Now, they even have a special deal for fans of the American Revolution podcast. Head to factormeals.com ARP50 and use that code ARP50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next box. That's code ARP50 at factormeals.com ARP50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Hey, 
Thanks for joining the American Revolution Podcast After Show. My thanks, as always, to Trey Nance and George Davis for their continued support of this podcast at the Alexander Hamilton Club level on Patreon. And thanks to Doug Donnelly, Luke Brooks-Schessler, and Warren Potter for one-time gifts via PayPal. I also want to send out a thanks to my longtime Patreon supporters, Adam Bixby, David Rice, and Roger Williams of 10crucialdays.org for their continued support. Also, a quick note on the social media front. I've created an American Revolution podcast group on MeWe.com. MeWe, spelled M-E-W-E, is basically a Facebook alternative for people who are sick of all the Facebook censorship and other nonsense going on over there. Now, I still plan to keep my Facebook group going, but I will also start posting to MeWe for those of you who may not like Facebook anymore. Also, for the Facebook fans, I've also added a Facebook page in addition to the Facebook group. The point of the page is that it will just have posts about the podcast. If you're not looking for interaction with other people, then you may prefer the page to the group. Just go to the Facebook page and hit like. Uh, One word of warning there, make sure you pick the right American Revolution podcast page. There are actually two pages called American Revolution Podcast. The other page is from some guy who has his own podcast, which is completely different from mine, but has the same name. I actually noticed there's quite a few people following that other page who are fans of my podcast. So it may be that you guys just want lots of American Revolution content from any source available, or you may have signed up for the wrong page. So make sure you connect to my page. This is the last episode that I will release in 2020. I try not to mention current events in this podcast, but I know this really has been a tough year for many people. So if you had a tough holiday season, just remember that George Washington finished out 1775 with most of his New England army abandoning him and going home, leaving him in desperate straits. Then he finished out 1776, again with most of his army abandoning him after the British landing and takeover of New York and New Jersey, and Washington pretty much had to risk everything for a desperate Christmas attack on Trenton. The following year, in 1778, again with most of his army melting away, Washington celebrated Christmas by commuting the death sentences of a couple of the soldiers among the hundreds who had deserted from Valley Forge. So, if we think we had a tough holiday season ourselves, it's probably not as bad as what Washington and his men endured. If you did endure something that terrible this year, my hope for you in the new year is that you come out of it stronger and better, just like the Continental Army did. Uh, This week, I also want to send out a couple of apologies. A couple of months ago, I recommended a new book called The Ten Key Campaigns of the American Revolution. In my recommendation, I stated that the book's editor was Mark Edward Lendl. In fact, the editor is Edward Lengel. I must have had Mark Lendl's name still in my head because I had recommended another book from him about the Conway Cabal a couple of weeks prior. So, The Ten Key Campaigns of the American Revolution is edited by Edward Lengel. My apologies to both men for the confusion. And thanks to Barry Snyder for catching that error and pointing it out to me. So this week's episode was all about the creation of West Point. 
The defensive complex would go on to become the scene of Benedict Arnold's treason, something I will, of course, talk about in a future episode. And its real fame came from its establishment as the site of the U.S. Military Academy. Even before the Military Academy, leaders saw West Point as a really important location. When the Army disbanded in 1783, Congress retained only 100 soldiers for the entire U.S. Army. Just 100. Half of the Army, about 50 men, were stationed at West Point. It would be about two more decades until the administration of Thomas Jefferson that West Point became the site of a military academy. Even then, classes remained really small, with only two or three students admitted in the first few years. In the first 10 years of the school, a combined total of only 52 cadets graduated. Much of the early forts have been demolished or built over as the academy has expanded over the years. However, some parts of the original forts do still exist and have been preserved. Unfortunately, much of it is not open to the public. Most of the West Point chain was melted down and reused for other purposes after the war ended. They kept it for a time, but sold it for scrap in 1829. However, a few links of the chain do still exist and are kept on display at the fort. In the 19th century, some scam artists sold some links that they claimed were part of the West Point chain. These fraudulent links were much larger than the links that were actually used. Yet some museums, including the Smithsonian, still thought they had original links, which they kept on display until 1990. My book recommendation this week is a biography of one of the men responsible for building West Point. It is called The Peasant Prince. Thaddeus Kosciuszko and the Age of Revolution, by Alex Storazinski. Kosciuszko led an amazing life, with his time in America only one part of it. After the revolution, he returned home to continue the fight to free his native Poland. There is some debate on how to pronounce the man's name. Some say Kosciuszko, some say Kosciuszko, some say Kosciuszko, The man had lots of locations named after him in America, and each locality seems certain of its pronunciation, but each one is different. I won't pretend to know how he pronounced it himself, so we have to live with the disagreement. In any event, though, Kosciuszko's life is worth reading about, so I'd recommend getting a copy of The Peasant Prince, Tadeusz Kosciuszko and the Age of Revolution. My online recommendation this week will tell you more about a less-remembered officer involved in the creation of West Point. Rufus Putnam was a colonel for most of the war, but was one of the last officers to receive a commission as Brigadier General just a few months before the Treaty of Paris. He played several critical roles over the course of the war and had an interesting story that is not well-remembered. After the war, Rufus Putnam goes on to play a crucial role in the settlement of Ohio. If you don't know as much about him as you think you should and you want to learn more, a good place to start is with his own memoirs. Archive.org has The Memoirs of Rufus Putnam available for free online or to download. As always, you can search for it at archive.org or use the direct link on my website or blog. Go to blog.com dot amrevpodcast.com 
and find this episode, or you can go to my website at www.amrevpodcast.com, where I have a link to the current week's recommendation, as well as a page with all of my past weekly recommendations. Well, that's all for this week. I hope you will join me again next week for another American Revolution podcast. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts.